Avi on Money, 12 to 1 p.m., only on 101.9 High FM. Welcome to 101.9 High FM. It's eight minutes past the hour, nearly nine minutes past the hour. Thank you so much once again for joining us. And uh, if you're in the car, please take it easy in the traffic. There's a lot of wind on the highways. I know that's not something we often say in Joburg, but um, I was uh, driving to Benoni this morning. I could actually feel the car being buffered. Um, but it's nice to have some nice cold weather. It's crisp, it's clear, and uh, the weather's holding out, so that's really, really nice. Um, we are now sitting in a in a very strange time of the year. We in the middle of the year, the July holidays are upon us in some schools some schools still coming up but it's been a long push since January there's been a bit of a break around the Pesach time around the Easter time but we're now getting an opportunity just to breathe and the majority of investors um, start the year with wonderful plans and wonderful ideas and everything's on track and then life happens and next thing you turn around and the first chance you've really got to look as to what has actually transpired over the last six months is now in July. Um, some of us are more diligent and look at it more often but you know life happens and uh, we really get sidetracked and this is the first opportunity to really look at it. So once again, um, the best person to speak about this that I can think of is Jeff Blunt, who's MD at Bayer Cap- Bayhill Capital. Jeff, welcome back to High FM. Hello, everyone. Yes, hi, Avi, and uh, that's a very kind introduction there. I'm not sure I would rate myself among the best person to speak to, but well, I'll take the compliment. You've got you. 50 minutes to prove me okay, right. Okay, I've got 50 minutes. Okay, <clears> I'm sure we're going to do a good job at that. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jeff, that was what we were basically discussing off air mm. before we came in. Is that December is really a time to relax? I know mm. personally, it's the the only time I actually amble through the the financial or the business section of exclusive books mm. because even if I travel frequently, <clears throat> so I don't really pick up business books in the airport. Mm. I, I tend to do work sort of things on the plane, mm. and I really buy a couple of books that are interest me, and I tend to read the majority of them in December, and sort of get my mind around things early Jan, mm. and then we move in. But what happens in between? You know, people come back, they make their picks, and then what happens? Look, I think that's a great observation that you make, and uh, uh, we see it that. Was your observation? Well, <laughs> no, your ambles through exclusive books, and you know that's the time that you actually read your books, right. and you and you have a bit of uh, you, a little bit of time for reflection, and and maybe that reflection often through the holidays, uh, and it is December because that's when we normally have our longest holidays, is when people sort of think about. The, uh, their, their personal administration, you know, not just necessarily what they're doing personally in their lives from a, uh, but their, their administration, they catch up on their admin, what's outstanding, what I still need to do. And one of the things that we notice a lot with our clients is, uh, that they come back in January and they've actually looked at their share portfolio. They've thought about, they've actually read some of those old financial mails that piled up in the corner of their office or, uh, at the, in the house, you know, they, 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 they troll the internet and they find a few interesting ideas. And then they come back in, in January and, and they make a few trades on their portfolio, only then to be caught up in the hurly-burly of the rest of the, in, the, rest of the year. You know, most people, especially personal invest, private investors, are not professional investors. They don't look at this every single day. And uh, as a result, 
is a bit of activity on the portfolio in January, and then you know you kind of get distracted with life, uh, and uh, uh, and you end up with what we often refer to as sort of neglected share portfolios, where they're, they're kind of they're looked at intermittently, um, and so we always think that you know the middle of the year is a nice time to uh, just have a bit of a refresher, have a look at those uh, statements you get from your stockbroker, have a look at some of the shares in the portfolio, and and, and maybe uh, look at some of the avoid making some of the common mistakes that a lot of private investors make when it comes to uh, portfolio construction and stock selection. Jeff, before we go into that, maybe let's just take a step back. Um, I was at the Discovery Financial Planning Summit a few weeks ago, and there they interviewed um, Warren Buffett, which I must say wasn't wasn't all that wonderful. It was like really, it was headlined as this amazing interview, but mm. you can go and YouTube it and listen to it, even yeah. though it was you know it was done with Bruce Whitfield. It was quite interesting, but it, it, it didn't have the the punch that I thought it would have. But the big thing they were saying is if you would have bought a Berkshire Hathaway share yes. many, many years ago, mm. hang on, hang on for one year, you could have bought a Coke. And then two years, you could have bought two tires and five years, a car. And today you can basically buy half America on a share. Yes. You know, I'm being facetious, mm. but just to show the logic of buying value and keeping it. Mm. Is that not what a lot of investors do who are not professionals, where they buy value stocks with the idea of you know, either holding them for the capital gain or holding them for the dividends or for both. And they're not there to make changes. No, absolutely. In fact, I think that sometimes private investors uh, inadvertently, if not intentionally, um, tend to be better investors than professional investors who are paid to look at the market every day, who are paid to make changes to the portfolio because they need to be seen to be active. Uh, you know, Berkshire Hathaway and, and Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger have the luxury that they've first all been in the game. I mean, they're both in their early 90s, I think. Um, they've both been in the game for like 70 years, uh, 60, 70 years, and, and they have had the luxury of time. But also, um, they also very clearly at the start said, look, we're long-term buy and hold investors. And over time, that is the best strategy to um, to take. So if you are uh, an individual investor out there and you, and you run the risk of a neglected share portfolio, you might actually find that that might not be an altogether, altogether bad strategy. In fact, it might be a better strategy than an actively churned portfolio where you're actually responding to news all the time. Uh, because then you kind of uh, lose the one amazing thing about equities, and that's just the long-term compounding of capital growth and dividends. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's a, that's a great bit of advice. I, I think the one risk with professional fund managers is that even if they know they shouldn't fiddle with the portfolio, their clients go, hang on, I'm paying you, you Mr. Stockbroker or Mr. Unit Trust Manager, 1% a year to run my portfolio, and you've done nothing in the last six months. You haven't earned your money. And so, therefore, they often feel the the necessity to be shown to be active and trade the portfolio, which ultimately might not always be in the in the best interest of the clients. You know, Alan Gray has a a, a presentation that they they've shown over and over mm. and over. The one is about a, a a chap who came to them when they just opened and gave them the sum of money, and he then passed on. I think it was in the equity fund, and his wife came up to them many, many, many years later and asked. Would it be possible? Does she have enough? She wanted twenty or twenty-five thousand mm. rand, and the portfolio was sitting in at like twenty-five million <laughs> rand. And when they showed her what it was, she actually couldn't believe it. Simply, it was buying a good, a well-managed fund, and mm. it had the luxury of time. And it said, the other thing that they they often show is emotional buying and selling. Yes. So 
if you are an emotional buy and seller, you will sell low and you will buy uh-huh. high. And you will just get knocked on the totally incorrect side of the market every single time. But mm, Absolutely. I, I think that the, the biggest um, detriment that investors do to themselves is that emotional buying and selling. And that's probably why long-term buy and hold strategies outperform the average investor. Um, they did an interesting um, study, and in fact, the, the name will come to me now, but it was over sort of from 1985 to 2010, um, sort of over like a 25-year period. It was one of the best-performing mutual funds in America. Um, and yet and it was very, very lumpy. It was lumpy performance, absolutely. Um, I think Bill Lynch was the, the manager. I can't remember the, the Magellan Fund. That was it. I think it was the Magellan Fund. Um, and so what, over that period, it was the best performing fund. But then they did a profile and they analyzed the actual under, the average performance of the underlying investors. And while this fund on average beat the U.S. market by 5 or 10% a year, whatever the number was, the average investor actually underperformed almost by that same quantum. And the reason why was because the average investor was getting into the fund after he'd just had a, a whoopee. And then he would underperform, and then they'd panic out. So while the fund itself was a great fund, the investors in the fund all did quite poorly. And that's an amazing lesson in just patience and 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 actually just buy and hold strategy. And and importantly, though, when you whether it's a fund or a, a direct share, you mentioned the term earlier on. It's about quality. You know, it's buying. You know, some shares are poor quality and. Buy and hold's not going to work for them, or some funds of poor quality. But ultimately, if you buy something that is of good quality and you sit with your investment, uh, over time you will be well rewarded for that patience. I, I really want to get back to our mandate, which is mm. actually talking about stocks, and there's, there's, mm. there's eight points that I want to get through. But one thing I just want to bring up is that I'm sure you have the same thing. A client will come to you and say to you, Stanlib is rubbish. Mm. Momentum is the worst unit trust. Mm. Alan Gray doesn't know what they're doing. And I say to the person, it's like saying to me mm. that, Carole, uh, that Toyota's a crap car. Yeah. <laughs> which car, which model, which, yes. which d- derivative, which, you know, the, uh, which yeah, time frame. You walked into a dealership, mm. the bucky was on sale, you thought you're getting a brilliant deal, you've got four children, what are you doing with the bucky? <laughs> Don't tell me it's a rubbish car. Yeah. You bought the wrong vehicle yeah. for its purpose. Absolutely. And, um, you know, sometimes you've just got to take a step back. We do have very few rubbish companies in, in this com- country, mm. if any. They're usually well-managed. Mm. You've got to look at the particular company. You've got to look at the particular fund. And you've also got to look at what you want to achieve. And once you've got those three things in sync, then you've maybe got somewhere to go. It become, I mean, absolutely. It's, it's, it's almost uh, – the, the investing is um, simple. But not uh, so. What's the saying? Investing is actually quite simple, but it's hard to do. Absolutely, yeah. great, Jeff. Let's let's take a quick break. Run to the markets, and when we come back, let's look at the eight points that people can take away with them. And by the way, I will put them up on our Facebook page so you can see them, and you can always go to Bayhill and get some information there. And then we'll go through them. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. Avi on money. 
12 to 1 p.m. Only on 101.9 High FM. Welcome to 101.9 High FM. It is 20 minutes past the hour. And just to remind you that our SMS line is 34519. I'm sure you all know that number in your sleep. Please SMS us if you've got any questions for Jeff Blunt, who is the MD at Bayhill Capital. Got anything to do with the stock market, anything to do with specific shares. Mark Quatcher, we can answer every single question. But please send the questions through. Let's have a look. If we don't have the answers now, we'll come back to you. Um, Jeff, let's go on to point, um, point number two. And this is where people buy shares and they they just hang on to them because a share is a share. So mm. it's got to make money over time. Mm. And they just simply watch it going south. Yeah. So one of the observations we make is uh, in, in, the, in the eight points of looking for uh, or, or how to refresh or just keep your portfolio appropriate for your needs is to avoid this long tail. Um, so we often make the observation that, and it's not just a South African phenomenon, but you know, in, investors that build their own share portfolios suffer from two things, over-concentration and over-diversification. And those things sound very contradictory in the same sentence. But uh, the, the truth is what happens is, is that you end up with a few winners in your portfolio, and they grow from 5 to 10 to 20 to 25% of your portfolio. So what you might find is that your portfolio, you might have, 20 stocks in your port 10 20 stocks in your portfolio but maybe four or five of them dominate um, and in fact you've now you know and they maybe may make up from a value perspective 60 or 70 percent of the portfolio and then you have a whole lot of little tail shares okay that by hook or by crook maybe there was an unbundling maybe the share didn't perform too well over the years suddenly end up at you know and you might have 10 or 20 stocks that are at 0.1 and 0.2 percent of your portfolio you know actually they worth a, you know your portfolio is you know they might be a couple of hundred rands worth of value in your portfolio and they've just got there by an accident of history, if you want to call it. And and our first bit of advice there is, is just avoid that tail. Clean that up. Now, there's two ways you clean it up. The one is go and revisit those companies and say, I actually still like this company, but it's only 0.2% of my portfolio. You know, at 2.2% of the portfolio, even if the share doubles, which is a great return, it's going to have a negligible impact on your portfolio. So rather actually move it to a meaningful way, 2 or 3% of your portfolio, so that if it does move up, because if your assessment that it's a good business, at least it can have a meaningful impact. Or alternatively, sell it out. So investors actually, from a psychology perspective, are pretty, to our view, more, are quite good at identifying good ideas. But they're very bad at actually pulling the trigger to exit an idea. We like to hang on to ideas. Even though this share has now become an irrelevant part of the portfolio. So bite the bullet and either say, okay, I like this share. I'm going to put some more money with it or I'm going to exit it. Um, but those long tails do nothing for you. And, you know, and if you've got a portfolio and maybe 20% of your portfolio by value is in a whole lot of little names, you know, penny stocks that you've picked up over the years, just get rid of them because that's 20% of your money that's essentially doing nothing. And it's, it doesn't matter whether those shares do well or badly. It's just that each share is so small in the portfolio, it's not going to have any impact if it does well. So rather clear them out or, or buy them up. So avoid those long tails. Yeah. I suppose that's the gutsy thing. You're keeping it there because it's got some sort of comfort value mm. because you know it's so small that if it does, but even if it does, it's irrelevant. Yeah. And you know, either put your money where your mouth is and just increase the holding oh. or just scrap them and put money elsewhere. Elsewhere, yeah. The, uh, the, the, the psychology of that is, is, is quite funny because, um, and I know even myself personally, I suffer from this, but I think all investors suffer from it. And that is, let's say you've got a share in the portfolio and you bought it at 
20 rand, and for some reason it's gone down to 2 rand. Okay. And now it's a very tiny weight in your portfolio. Now, by right, you should clean it out because it's actually, even if it goes back from 2 rand to 4 rand, it's not going to have a material impact in your performance. But the psychology of, of investors is actually, I only realize that loss. When I sell, okay, because I bought it at 20 rand, it's trading at 2 rand. In my mind, I still actually hanker back to the fact that it might be worth 20 rand. So, therefore, I'm not going to sell it at 2 rand and realize my loss. But the truth is you've already lost the money. Um, it's gone. You, you know, you, 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 it's, it's not 2 rand. Rather, get that 2 rand and do something else with it. Well, alternatively, if you actually really love the share and you think that you've got misjudged it, then, yeah, buy a whole lot more because if you think it's going to go back to 20 rand put money into the idea and that's something what Warren Buffett keeps saying he says he doesn't mind if the share halves as mm. long as the management is good mm. and the company is sound <clears throat> and there's a future then he'll do that um, Jeff I'm just looking at the SMS lines um, someone's talking about that they've held Sunlam and Old Mutual for a long time but the performance performances are not good mm. am I correct in saying that that's just what I was saying a bit earlier Mm. You know, what do you have at Sunlam and what do you have at Mutual? Mm. Two old established companies. Sunlam especially has really reinvented itself mm. over the years. Mm. And it's not quite fair to say that, you know, should she sell them? What type of units are you holding? Well, look, uh, maybe, uh, again, if, if the question is about Sunlam and the old Mutual share specifically, because if it's a policy, then oh, I can't Oh, sorry, thank you. Is the share. It's the share. Okay, great. If it's a policy, I can't, because you've got to know what's in the policy. Correct. Uh, if it's the share, so, look, uh, both businesses are, are quality businesses um, with quality management teams. I think that Sunlam reinvented itself a number of years ago, and so from a quality perspective, we like the business. And I think old Mutual um, under Bruce Hemphill is also going a long way to appropriately reinvent itself the, the, what 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 the what the listener needs to understand is that these are big life insurance businesses and the reality is is that what they do is they collect policyholder money uh, from people that are buying insurance and they invest that in the market and then in the in the dreadful event that you've got a claim either a disability or a death or something they'll pay your insurance premium out but in the meantime they take all this money and they invest it they put it on their balance sheet and the truth is that their balance, their biggest driver of their earnings over time, which then in turn is their share price, is actually what the market does. Because they sit with a lot of these the, – the, all of their balance sheet is invested in the stock market locally and offshore. And if the market is rampant and booming, then their earnings are rampant and booming because their, their balance sheet is increasing in value. So there's a high degree of leverage between these businesses that that is influenced by – Stock market performance, and in South Africa, the market has been. Really, we were talking, you know, off air. It's been relatively flat for the last few years, like up and down. But you know, we haven't had any fireworks from our market. Um, but so my advice is that, without knowing the personal circumstances, I think these are relatively good businesses, um, and they they well run. But understand, you're really buying something that is driven ultimately by the market. You know, if you're bullish on the South African stock market and you think it's going to go up dramatically in the next few years, then these are probably good investments. But again, on a long-term hold strategy, uh, I wouldn't necessarily look to exit. Uh, the one thing with the mutual, which is quite nice, is that they, they are going through a process of unbundling and selling off some of their offshore assets. And we think that will be good for shareholders. So there's an, probably a potentially near-term opportunity in that the share price is trading below what we'd call its net asset value. It's, it's the values of the underlying businesses. And if they sell some of those off, then there's a potential upside uh, for investors. 
Okay, I think we've we've answered the question yeah. there quite succinctly. Mm. And what's nice about the question was to do directly with shares, yeah. not so much um, mm. portfolios. Mm. Yeah, Jeff, let's let's go on to the the the, the next one, which which is almost counterintuitive, mm. because it's avoid bias biases towards well known large cap shares. Mm. How many times have we heard? Oh, this is a large. This is a blue chip. It's a it's a large cap. It's a it's a great share. And therefore, you know, it gives you some sort of comfort that mm. it's, it's stable. What do you guys oh. mean by that? Look, when, when, when I grew up, um, you know, they used to talk about blue chip shares or bottom jaw shares. You bought that share certificate. And my grandfather and my father, and you, in those days, you had a share certificate and you'd put it in the bottom drawer at your desk and you never ever sold it. You know, that was, you just, that you, you could never go wrong. And that was sort of the ultimate buy and hold strategy. Um, it's, uh, look, so the, the, the two things is that we're not anti blue chip. In fact, we think that blue chips or, you know, these are large, more stable companies that are of good quality are absolutely core in any, any portfolio. Um, my observation though is that I think that investors, perhaps have a false sense of comfort in blue chips, okay, um, in that, oh, well, if it's a big blue chip share, the share can never go down, okay, and remember, I'm separating out the quality of the business and the share price. Share prices go up and down, and and you have, and you have and then you have the entity of the company, um, and I think in, in this case, uh, there are lots of mid and small companies in South Africa that are also of good quality. And our, our manager-owned, we love what we call FOMO shares, family-owned, manager-owned shares. Okay, um, you know, you know that you know the thing, fear of missing out, FOMO. You were scared you weren't asked to party on a Saturday night because you you, you want to go because you you don't want to miss out. Well, we call these FOMO shares. You know, fear of missing out on these shares or family-owned, manager-owned shares. And a lot of these we like, we really like because the management's got skin in the game or they're family-owned. And funny enough, what we find about these FOMO shares is they are much better capital allocators. When the management team is looking long-term, they're willing to invest in a plant or a factory and know that it will take three to five years maybe before it starts making lots of profits. But they have that longer-term vision versus, say, other shares which which are short-term driven. So we, we like that about FOMO shares. So it's it's don't just get obsessed with blue chips. They're good companies, but blue chip shares are as volatile and can go up and down as small chip, uh, as smaller companies, but smaller companies have the opportunity to grow. You know, if the stock, if New York takes a smack tomorrow, just for some reason it happens to fall ten percent tomorrow, you can pretty much bet that on Thursday the JSC is going to fall ten percent. And whether you were in a mid small company or whether you were in a large love company like Naspass, it's both going to fall ten percent. You don't get that extra protection in the large company that you perceive. I suppose it's just. You know, keep your eye out for good opportunities out there, family-owned, manager-owned, mid-small businesses, and there's plenty of them. And actually, at the moment, most of those are trading very cheaply compared to the market. So we, we did an analysis. The, the average P.E., price-earnings ratio, on the stock exchange at the moment is 19. That means that you… Which is screamingly high. It's high. It's high. The, the long-term average is 15. Right. So, and to, to, the, to, the, to the layman out there, it means that if I was to buy the all shares, a whole index, for every 19 rand I spend, there's one rand of underlying earnings okay, in the companies. We went and looked at the median PE on the stock exchange. That's actually so the middle P, it's not the average. And it's just a good proxy for the typical company out there. That's on 11 and 12, okay, which means that you spend 12 rand of earnings. Um, uh, 12 rand on a share to get one rand of earnings. You're getting better value. 
and, and you can buy many more shares. And there's many more shares. So, in fact, in South Africa, we find it's mostly the big, loved, large blue chip shares that are quite expensive. And they probably warrant that because they're good quality businesses. Um, and, in fact, one of the reasons, uh, you, know, you mentioned on air when you came, before you came on, you said, you know, you're surprised our market's held up so well given the local economic environment. Well, actually… Uh, we actually we've got large parts of the market that are incredibly cheap and actually done quite badly and if you're a long-term investor this actually might be the opportunity to start looking at some of these smaller shares you you can buy a nice company on an 8 PE got a 5 dividend yield it's got good quality management I'll take that Um, uh, uh, as opposed to buying a a 20 PE large company, which really is actually more challenged at the moment, you know, in the economy. And they've really to increase their profit year on year mm. is big, big numbers. Yes. Whereas you know, a smaller company to increase profit is smaller numbers. It's, it's easier. A hundred percent. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I've, I've been around for a while. Mm. I've never heard the term FOMO used yeah. in, in that <laughs> way. And as you were talking, I was just juxtaposing in my mind different insurance companies, for example, some that are manager-owned yeah. or manager-still-driven today, mm. and those that have phenomenal management teams mm. but yet don't have it. Mm. And I think the difference the difference is the culture. Yeah. You can have a brilliant CEO, but he's the CEO, mm. um, unless he's the founding CEO, yeah. whereas you can have other companies where the CEO is there, but yet he's the same person that you know, went scrounging for capital 25 years ago mm. to start a company, so to speak. I mean, um, if, if you look at your company, your company is a very similar scenario mm. where, mm. you know, a core group of guys got together many, many years ago mm. um, out of a, a big car stable, mm. uh, but they, they started their own company and they are mm. still manage that com- managing that company today. I think that's spot on. I mean, um, so we, for those of you who don't know, we're actually part of the Peregrine Group, right. Peregrine Holdings. Uh, absolutely, you know, and we think that we, the management team and the founders have skin in the game. It's, it, it is a, it, there is a different dynamic. The problem is, that, you know, eventually successful companies get so big that they, they, they have to become these big, boring, stodgy corporates. Eventually, everyone, I suppose, gets there if they grow to that size. Um, but the agility and the, the, the quick mindedness and entrepreneurship of, of the management teams is fantastic. You, you, you've used the term flippantly a mm. few times, skin in the game. No. But it's, you know, so we take it to mean that they invested in mm. the game. But it's not only that. They live, breathe, eat their business. Spot on. In a company like um, like um, Blue Label. Yes. A, mm. a similar thing. Mm. You know, they've made one or two shocking calls, especially politically in the last <laughs> uh, while, which mm. they had to quickly reverse. Mm. But the company survived. Yeah. Simply because... Well, we're entrepreneurs. Mm. We we gutsy. We're a little bit reckless, maybe at times, because we just need to be out there. And if it doesn't work, well, we'll just correct it and we'll move on. Mm. As long as the majority of what we do works mm. and adds value to our shareholders, we're doing well. Uh, it's funny. My uh, uh, my a colleague of mine within the group, Adrian Saville, is CIO at uh, Canon Asset Managers. He he's got referred a, to him as Doctor. Doctor, sorry, Doctor Adrian Savile. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he's listening, Adrian. Um, uh, he he refers to analysis. One of the analysis frameworks he does with companies is he talks about absorption and agility. Um, so if uh, the ability, absorption means the ability of a company to absorb a shock, so that would talk to its strength of balance sheet, its its funders, its backers. Um, the integrity of its management team, uh, and then the agility is to think fast and think on your feet. Think about a boxer, um, uh, and think on your feet and use opportunities that present themselves. Be entrepreneurial, um, and great companies exhibit both absorption and agility. 
clearly, you know, mid and smaller businesses are better able to do that. But even very big companies can exhibit that. Um, uh, and you might say, and you might say, well, a big company like Sunlum or Old Mutual, they might because they've got strong balance sheets, they might have a lot of absorption, but they certainly don't have agility. And you might have a lot of small venture capital startups. They certainly got the agility, but they don't have the absorption uh, to to take the shock or shocks. Um, and that's the that's a great framework to think about investing in. Is, is I want to have companies that have both attributes. And interesting. I, I went through the the whole sage life mm. demise. Mm. Um, there was such a loyalty to the company. Yeah. It was it was almost like a Waterloo. You know, you had no chance, but mm. you were loyal and you were there. And there was no absorption. Yeah. I mean, they went offshore, brilliant minds, experienced mm. people, and, and it just was their death now. It didn't work yet. Old Mutual did the same thing, mm. and they said, oops, sorry, we made a mistake, and they came back. and <laughs> Yeah, we, 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 we made go. a mistake with a couple of billion pounds. <laughs> oops, sorry, we, oh, <laughs> we'll move on. But that's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I suppose those mm. are the shifts. You know, uh, Jeff, I'll usually do this towards the mm. end, but just before we go to the break, let's maybe talk a little bit about Bayhill Capital. Mm. Um, it's holding in Peregrine, because we're now talking about stock mm. stocks uh, or mm. shares, as we call them mm. in South Africa. Mm. We're talking about stock brokers, people mm. that you can go to. How do people, what do you guys actually do? Who's your clientele? Who should come to you? Mm. How do people get in touch with you? Okay, so thanks for the, the prompt there. Um, yeah, so Bayhill Capital is a company that is uh, owned between Peregrine Holdings, uh, and Citadel, so that's the one side of our, our lineage, um, and another company called African Financial Group. So Peregrine Holdings will be very familiar with you. It's a listed financial services business, um, still currently under Johnny Hertz, but uh, he'll be leaving unfortunately soon. Um, and then our other shareholder in 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 Bale Capital is African Financial Group, which is owned uh, uh, by Dr. Gil Mishlati, who's a well-respected liver surgeon, um, although he's no longer in practice. Um, uh, We've actually interviewed on the show. I have you? Yes. Okay, fantastic. And yeah. his wife is very involved in… Dr. Voyeur Mishlati, yes. Involved in farming. That's right, yes. So they, Correct. They are. So they… Um, um, and um, I, I must say, I must say mm. he it's, walked in here, yeah. uh, Dr. Mishlati, yeah. and he was very casual, yeah. and he was very, very discreet. Mm. And I actually wasn't quite sure he, who he was. Mm. I, I'd read the thing, mm. and, I, and only afterwards we mm. started talking, and I realized, hold on, this is, this is, this is quite a, 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 a severe player in the financial markets and yeah. in the, in the mm. game. So no, that was a, quite he's interesting. A, he's a great character and, and, and very low profile, um, uh, a man of substance and integrity. So we're very pleased to have AFG as a, as a shareholder in the business. Um, so Bayhill does two things. The one is uh, we do wealth planning and wealth management. So that's financial planning. Uh, and then the second aspect uh, 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 is uh, building share portfolios. Um, and uh, private client share portfolio. So we build bespoke share portfolios where we'd meet with the client and uh, co-pilot a portfolio, pick stocks with them, or alternatively they would give us some money to run uh, run the portfolio. Um, and one of the things, uh, one of the initiatives that we're actually working on at the moment, interestingly enough, is uh, we're about to list a share um, on Zyx, which is one of the new exchanges. So it's not our share, but sorry, it's not Bayer Capital itself that's listing, um, but it's called the TIP, which is a transformation investment portfolio. Um, and what uh, what TIP will be doing, and this is really coming from a lot of demand from our clients, um, is uh, raising capital and doing two things with it. The one is looking for an economic return in the investments we make, uh, but the second one is to drive transformation in the economy. 
Uh, and a lot of people kind of see these as contradictory. So whether it's transformational or social objective investing and economic investing or commercial investing, and often people say they contradict each other, but we actually think we've, we, we think that they're actually complementary. And if you get it right, you can actually you can get a good return for your clients, but you can also affect a social objective. Uh, is a social objective a business social objective? No. So, so social objective investing uh, would be, um, so for example, where you, where you invest. So our specific social objective is transformation, which I'll talk about in a moment. But social investing is a broader category. So it would be, if you want to call it investing with a conscience. Um, and saying, okay, well, we're going to build portfolios that are either going to, if we invest in a company and we think the management's been unethical or behaving badly, we would come in and either or we'll work with management to, to, to affect a behavior change. This could be a, a big polluter, for example. The other method is you say, well, actually, I just don't invest in those companies, and that would be uh, investing by exclusion. So you might say, well, look, I don't want to invest in big polluters, or I don't want to invest in companies that are involved in corruption. And so you can start an exclusion policy. Um, so, so, uh, you know, so Future Growth runs um, a fixed income fund under Gandrew Cantor, um, and that invests, it's, it's a bond fund, but specifically investing in uh, bonds related to com- uh, uh, businesses that are working in the communities to, uh, for example, within uh, water purification or other objectives that have, let's say, uh, a good for the country objective. And funny okay. enough, commercially, they actually do quite well as well. When will those shares be available? So we're looking to – these. this will be listed sort of mid-October. Okay. Um, and, and part of the objective uh, in, in dealing with this is to raise capital from black investors and white investors, but always a majority of black investors, um, and then going to companies on the stock exchange and purchase them uh, and, and get a BE discount in those companies. So a lot of companies out there want to get in a BE shareholder. Uh, they're happy to issue shares at a discount to the share price as long as you commit for a few years. And then once we're on board, obviously, we'll work with the company. So that's the principle behind it. So basically a fund of funds in the stock exchange. Yeah, it, it, it would be, a, uh, it would be a, a, an investment holding company. Correct. Um, but specifically focusing on investing in companies where we can pick up a discount to market price. Jeff, just before I let sure. you go, we go to the break. Um, what people are asking is if they want to come to you, mm. bottom line, how mm. much money do they have to have for a share portfolio? Okay, so typically on a listed share portfolio where we build a portfolio, it's a million rand. Um, uh, we don't have funds apart from the tip, but when the tip is listed, you know, that will start off with a couple of hundred bucks. You know, you find your stock broker and you buy it like a share. So okay, so, so someone comes to you with a million rand. So that's where the starting portfolio yes, is. Yeah. Okay, there's lots of questions that come through. You've obviously sure. said something right or <laughs> said something very wrong. But let's take a quick break. Cool. We'll be back in a moment. Avi on money. 12 to 1 p.m. Only on 101.9 High FM. Welcome back to 101.9 High FM. It's 16 minutes to the hour, and unfortunately, it's only 16 minutes because, Jeff, we, we got sidetracked once again, and we haven't got through the list, but you quite uh, graciously said. <laughs> well, one graciously day we said, must stick to the script. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back. But just to quickly answer your questions, there's a question about whether cryptocurrencies are a good investment. We both looked at each other and smiled, but you wanted to say something about a course that's been running. Going to be running yeah, soon. Uh, look, so, um, in fact, I, I attended a, a conference last week for, for a couple of hours on blockchain and cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and all of these things, and it was fascinating. And I have to be honest, I didn't fully understand it. So I would be lying if I actually even led your, your listeners down the garden path. However, um, interestingly enough, I did pick up two 
invites into my inbox last week. The first one is I know that Gips, uh, the business school, is running um, in September or something a two-day session on cryptocurrencies and blockchain and all of that. And so maybe listeners will really want to learn about that. Well, look up on the website. And then uh, for, for the layman like me, the Free Market Foundation, I also got an invite from them. Go and Google Free Market Foundation. And they've got um, an hour session in a few weeks' time in an evening with Davi Root, the economist from Efficient Group. And he's talking about cryptocurrencies and the impact of digital currencies on the world. As an aside, it was just the blurb from it, but it sounded fascinating. And his view is that this is going to be liberating because we are going to get liberated from big government. Because when you go into cryptocurrencies, there are no borders, money moves around, there's tax. So in other words, you, you, it's not tax avoidance, but the ability to regulate and control this actually minimizes. And he talks about, he kind of refers that this could be the, a, a great revolution of freedom in the world. Away from and look, obviously the Free Market Foundation and Davi comes from a certain angle, but you know he's saying about from from the, the the shackles of big government, and in fact it could be a fantastic lesson for big government, whereby big governments will have to start behaving, um, because citizens will be citizens of the world financially, not citizens of a region or a country. A very interesting concept. I, I'll go to the talk and listen. It was just the blurb I'm repeating. Uh, repeating. The term that bumped that popped mm. into my mind was like a global euro. Yeah, I, I suppose it could be. Yeah, yeah, something yeah. like that. Not the euro, because that's got its own issues. But <laughs> <laughs> and I have yeah. my own opinions on that. The, 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 maybe just to add, uh, yeah, look, sure. uh, you mentioned Warren Buffett earlier on, so you can't have a show without quoting Warren Buffett. But Warren Buffett did make a comment, and he said, if he doesn't understand it, he won't invest in it. And I just think that so for investors that hear about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, by all means, have a go. But, you know, if you, if my, my I think that's sage advice that you, Truly, if you don't understand something, you don't bet the farm on it. That's the point. Mm. What, I don't know. I'm trying to remember where I heard it, but mm. he did say that he didn't invest in Facebook mm. and because it's not his type of share. Mm. And he's got a little bit of regret about yes, that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, look, I suppose there are things that you, you don't understand. I mean, I forgive him if he, at that age. Look, I don't understand Facebook, <laughs> and I'm in, I'm in my… Uh, <laughs> your, your uh, early, 20s. early 20s yeah <laughs> um, so someone sent us a question about inflation which we've both read and we're not quite sure the angle that you're coming from so if your phone number ends in 570 please just let us know what you're talking about inflation is it to do with a fixed annuity that you're getting or is it with dividend payouts because dividend payouts aren't linked to uh, inflation corrosion those payouts are a percentage and if the share increases the dividend should be higher yes. so um, uh, we're not quite sure what your question is please just resend it with a little bit more detail and we'll, we'll, we'll do our best to answer you um, Jeff in the next seven minutes mm. let's quickly go through sure. um, some of the other factors mm. and I'm actually going to hold some back so we no, pass you back no. into studio no. one thing you uh, point number four which mm. I'll read the headline is be aware of single factors Single-factor drivers in the portfolio. Mm. And what I understand that to be is don't buy 14 different construction shares. Exactly. Because they're all driven by the same factor. Yeah. I often used to say um, at my days in Momentum is that there was Momentum Balance Fund, which was mm. run by my friend Wayne McCurry. Mm. And then there was the Investec Invest Managed Fund, mm. which similar mandates and mm. portfolios, but yet total different performances. But there was such a good marriage yes. because there was no correlation between them. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, so in other words, you were getting the best of the same mandate mm. with a totally different flavor. You were getting 
a Toyota Corolla 1.6 mm. and a Nissan Almera 1.6 mm. with totally different drives. Mm. No, that's spot on. Yeah, look, so the, the single-factor driver, for those that aren't economists uh, or financial training, it just means a theme. So the same theme or or, or uh, uh, a common underlying economic driver. So a, a classic case in point is, is that you might build a portfolio that is all RAND hedge stocks. So it's all commodity stocks or companies that have offshore earnings. You know, So that are very little South African-focused businesses. What that means is you might have a portfolio of 20 stocks and you think, geez, I've actually got a nice diversified portfolio. The rand goes from 17 rand to 12 rand to the dollar and you get hit. And it's not because the stocks are bad stocks. It's just because, in fact, you've reduced a portfolio of shares down to an underlying factor. And so this, and there's no science to this. It's just look at your portfolio and say, well, what are the, the key drivers for every stock? You know, commodity stocks, it's easy. It's currency and commodity prices. Banks, kind of the interest rate cycle. Um, you know, offshore companies that might be the global economic growth rate. And just make sure that you've done, the trick here is just diversification, that you've got a little bit to everything. Because only if you are so confident that you know where the rand is going to go or you know where interest rates are going to go, should you take a large factor bet in your portfolio? Um, now, a classic case in point is a few years ago when there was still a consumer boom in South Africa and all the consumer stocks were doing so well. Uh, you couldn't, we, we were always staggered to see clients' portfolios that had like 40, 50, 60% of the portfolio in consumer-driven stocks. Mr. Price, Woolies, you know, Fashini, all, you know, all, and great, you know, all great businesses. Um, but, uh, uh, but in fact, ultimately, it was just what the consumer was doing that was driving the portfolio. And when the economy slowed and these shares took a hit, the clients couldn't understand why their portfolio had done badly. And the truth is because you had too much exposed just to one single factor. And that's really what you pay a stockbroker for. Yeah. Or even just look at your portfolio and say, is there an over, are there, is there, you know, are there dominant themes here? And make sure that the theme just doesn't dominate. But yes, absolutely. That's what you pay a stockbroker or a financial planner for. One thing that we need to do on the show, that I need to do, is do live reads. And uh, so <laughs> let, let's go to the shops quickly and just let you know that Pick and Pay Norwood, who I must say, um, and this is not scripted, is a great supporter of High FM. A lot of our um, community things happen there and they advertise quite a bit. So let's just to let you know that they have some very, very special deals for you. This is what they are. Tastic grass, two, two, two kilogram, long grain, parboiled for 21 rand, 99 rand each. Pick and Pay free range, extra large. 18 extra large eggs. Now, go and buy those because from what I understand, I don't think we're going to be getting too many eggs going forward. Um, yeah. For 39 rand, 90 rand, 99, you can save 10 rand. Baby soft two-ply white toilet tissues, tissues 18s, 89 rand, 90 each. And you can buy two Brooks Oris original squash, two liters from 58 rand. And Big Jim Alpha Clear storage box set that's three times 13 liters was 129, now only 89 rand. 99 and there's some other specials that are going um let's say that you know that you can buy combos so you can buy all four and you can save 45 rand what is that it's a four kilogram pick and pay washed uh, potatoes three kilograms of butternut three kilograms of onion and tomatoes and if you buy all those together you can save a lot Nescafe, next sorry nestle Rick coffee 750 grams 69 rand each save 11 rand and pick and pay white sugar two rand two and a half kilograms you can save 35 rand so please pop around to pick and pay nord have a look at the specials and take advantage of that jeff in two minutes mm. i'm going to ask you to look into your um, crystal ball. Mm. 
Where do you see us going in the next six months? And we're talking about to people who have stocks, mm. to people who have share portfolios, to people who have unit trusts, just people who look at the market every day. Mm. What is Bayhill's house view of the next six months? Okay, I, I think that we probably have a slightly contrarian view to most people and that we're actually mildly optimistic about where the economy goes in South Africa and where earnings are going to go. I think that we all knew that this year was going to be a tough year politically uh, and economically. Um, so I think this is sort of the watershed. Uh, why do we say that is because by December – we're going to have clarity on what where policy goes at the ANC elective conference. And interestingly enough, from an economic perspective, uh, unpol- we think policy uncertainty is much more damaging than bad policy. Okay, Now, that sounds bizarre, but as an investor, if you don't know what's going to happen, it's much more erosive to your confidence than when you have a clear direction of what policy is going to happen. Because once you've got policy, you can deal with it. You can deal with it and you can navigate it and you can understand what the rules of the game are. Right now, we don't know what the rules of the game are. Um, and, and I actually suspect that whether uh, it's uh, at the elective conference, whether it's whatever, whoever wins that, I think is going to be a step up from the current administration. Um, and at the same time, I think we will then start the political jockey in South Africa will finish. We'll know whether we like it or not what the game plan is for the next four years. Um, and I think from there you'll start getting some uh, more policy certainty. And I think we'll actually, I think we'll, we'll start seeing a, a, a confidence rebuild in the economy. Earnings come through. And so at this level, I think a lot of shares in the market are actually quite attractive. I'm not forecasting when they're going to start recovering, but, um, I would be mildly optimistic. Uh, and on a two, three year view of I had a bit of cash, I think, Buy when when the, we're at the point of maximum doom and gloom, and we are certainly at, at emotionally a fraught stage in 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 the, in the country. But I think actually going forward, we're in for some, uh, I think, positive upsides. Uh, so that would be our view. And, yeah. and that's, you know, one thing, it, it's not an emotional statement. In no, no. It, it, We've thought it out. Mm. And one thing about South Africa mm. is that the people are resilient. And yeah. we stick around and we make things happen. And we've seen the market already discount a lot mm. of the political uh, noise yeah. that's going on. Underlying factors are there. What we really need is certainty and we need people to start spending money Absolutely. again. Yeah. Okay, that's an inflation risk, but mm. rather that mm. than have job layoffs that we're having at the moment. Mm. Yeah. Right now, the, the, the landscape is, uh, is, is, is dominated by policy uncertainty and jockeying, political jockeying. Once, it's, once we're over that hump, I think that we have, as a country, great absorption and great agility. Funnily enough, that's a nice analogy. Absolutely. And uh, we we we're absorbing lots of punches at the <laughs> moment, moment yes. which means every every action has a reaction, yeah. which means there's a lot of kinetic energy to come out. Absolutely, when the market comes. Yeah. Jeff, thank you always for being here. Thank you for your uh, positivity, and thank you from time to time sending uh, some of your able-bodied soldiers to come <laughs> to the studio. Much appreciated. Um, thank you everybody for listening. Craig, thanks for pushing the buttons. Michelle, thanks for putting it together, and we will see you next week.